1: Find out more by going to www.intelligentsquared.com forward slash partnerships.
2: Thank you very much, Hannah. Thanks to all of you for coming out. Um, Our discussion tonight is on Europe on the Edge. Uh, And I must hasten to say that when the notion of this debate was put together, many of the events that now form the context for our conversation had obviously not happened. And uh, one of those is the calling of a general election, uh, which was called and summoned to be the Brexit election. And some of you may have been struck by the absence of discussion of Europe and Brexit in this election. And so not for the first time, Intelligence Squared aims to deliver what the politicians and others will not, which is a candid conversation about Europe, which has been missing from this campaign. But obviously the other part of context are the uh, attacks in London on Saturday night and the attacks two weeks before uh, in Manchester. And they will inevitably, I think, frame some part of our... Uh, conversation and, of course, just by all of you being here uh, and this debate going ahead, is I think a sign that uh, of our collective determination to defy those who would stop us having these conversations and instead to keep on. Uh, and so we have uh, assembled here five people, all with a unique vantage point and tremendous expertise on our topics. That uh, you know, and there are different ones that might lead to Europe being on the edge. So let me introduce them uh, more or less in physical order. Professor of Economics at Oxford and development expert who is widely uh, acknowledged as an expert in the field and acclaimed for his new book, Refuge. He recently turned his attention, as that title suggests, to the subject of mass migration, examining its effects on both uh, the societies that receive migrants and on the countries those migrants leave behind. Uh, A warm welcome, please, for Professor Paul Collier. Our next speaker is an award-winning novelist and is the most widely read female writer in her native Turkey. She's a prominent advocate for minority rights and free speech there and uh, elsewhere. You may have read her non-fiction work, her essays in The Financial Times, The New York Times, The New Yorker and The Guardian. A welcome, please, for Elif Shafak. Thank you. Um, our next speaker, on my immediate right, is uh, born in, was born in Italy and is now the Professor of Finance at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. He writes frequently on populism, which is obviously, I think, going to be one of our themes tonight, immigration and the state of the Eurozone economy. He recently launched a heated debate in the Italian media about the costs and the benefits of the Euro for his native Italy. He is Luigi Zingales. And turning to our speakers who have hot-footed it from the continent to be here. Uh, Born in Belgium, but a journalist who became editor-in-chief of the French weekly news magazine, L'Express. She now presents a current affairs program on France's equivalent of BBC4. She is Christine Ocrent. And completing our panel, known to many of you, I'm sure. He is a regular writer and columnist for both The Spectator and Standpoint magazine, writes frequently for all kinds of other publications, including the Sunday Times here and the Wall Street Journal in the United States. His current and new book is The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity and Islam which has now, I think this week, reached the number one spot in the Sunday Times bestsellers list. He is Douglas Murray. So that is our panel, and we are talking, as I said, about Europe on the edge. That's the subject before us. And I'm guessing that you could uh, carry or hold that thought in your mind applied to many things. You could be thinking of the terror attacks that we've experienced in Britain in these last few weeks, but our uh, neighbours on the continent have been experiencing in recent months too. Uh, You could be thinking about the economy. You could be thinking about the phenomenon of mass migration. So I'm going to ask each of our contributors here to set out their stool and tell us really in just a minute or so what it is that is making them anxious and what what are they worried about and what makes them feel that Europe is on the edge. And Why don't I start with you, Christine Ockrent?
3: Well, I'm actually worried that so many brilliant minds still dwell into gloom and doom at a time where it seems to me Europe is in a much better shape than it was a few months ago. Uh, There's that fatal triangle, uh, Mr. Trump, Putin, Erdogan. Uh, They compel us to really do our things ourselves. There's also a better economic cycle in the Eurozone. And uh, last but not least, the populist wave seems to have been stopped somehow, certainly in Holland and certainly in, in France, where Emmanuel Macron, I think, will uh, revigorate and stimulate a a much more positive approach to uh, European
2: issues. And assembly elections coming up in France this weekend, Indeed,
3: on June 11 and June 18.
2: So it's not all about us when it comes to elections. There are other elections going on. So thank you, Christine. Uh, Why don't we hear from you, Paul Collier, on what's on your mind in terms of what makes you worried about Europe on the edge? Well, I see Europe as a political project, um,
4: primarily a, a political project by the, the Germans, the French, um, which um, some years ago made a catastrophic mistake of using economic instruments as political symbols. Um, and I think that was catastrophic because it produced powerful economic divergence. Um, that potentially gives an incentive for some countries to leave um, and I think the Germans have already made it pretty clear that their strategy for stopping any exit um, is to make British exit as painful as possible. So actually I'm fearful
2: for the implications of that strategy for us. So in order to discourage other people from leaving and spreading the contagion, there will be a sort of, this is the punishment beatings model yeah. in which Britain gets take take takes punishment. Its reparations are back. Interesting. You've already broken the unspoken rule of all these discussions, which is never to mention the war. You've done it within <laughs> four or so minutes, but uh, somebody was going to do it. Um, let's hear from you next, Luigi Singales,
5: about what do you think, um, what do you have on your mind, what's worrying you? So I'm worried that uh, Europe, which was a, in its origin a fantastic project to bring prosperity and harmony in Europe, um, is actually turning into a prison where people uh, start to build resentments and hate each other more. Um, in uh, 20 years ago, uh, the Greeks were not calling the German Nazi and the Germans were not calling the Greeks lazy. And uh, today, this is an outcome of a ill-conceived uh, economic project that, uh, as Paul said, was conceived by politicians for politicians' means, use economic means in, in the wrong direction. And, uh, unfortunately, has been sold and supported by a lot of economists, uh, but so far with uh, pretty negative consequences. I don't see an end in sight, and I- I'm sorry, uh, I don't think that uh, even Macron has a magic wand to fix this. I
2: mentioned at the start that you've kicked off this debate about the euro, is it your argument that Italy itself should come out of the euro?
5: I think that uh, it's a bit like Hotel California. You can check out but never leave. I think that uh, it's uh, designed to destroy a country if it leaves. So it's impossible to leave, at least unilaterally. Uh, but uh, some nations, and mine is one, uh, suffer tremendously in it. That, that's, the, that's the dilemma. And when you force people into a cage, you know you have rage. And that's what is happening.
2: So we've had two very pessimistic views from this side, and we had an optimistic view from Christine. Uh, Elif, where are you on this? What's worrying you, if anything, about Europe?
6: I I don't think you should uh, expect an optimistic view from a Turkish writer. We are so, so depressed. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, But honestly, coming from a country like Turkey, where diversity, cosmopolitanism has been lost, and uh, the cost of that loss has been tremendous... I am worried about many things in Europe and across the world. I think what has happened in Turkey could happen anywhere. It could even happen here. And while it's true that populist tides seem to have slowed, they have not disappeared. They are there, and we need to talk about them. And to me, it's very interesting to see when populist movements are in opposition, they have an impact beyond their size. So much so that they can change the rhetoric of mainstream politics and politicians. We have seen an example of this in the Netherlands, for instance. Yes, Geert Wilders did not win the elections, but thanks to his presence and his base, mainstream politicians in the Netherlands started to employ a much more nationalistic, jingoistic language during their uh, elections. Now, when populists come to power, this is when they are in opposition. They have an impact beyond their size. When they come to power, history has shown us that they benefit enormously from controlling the state apparatus, the main narrative, but also the media. And thirdly, I think we need to be careful because no matter how isolationist and nationalistic they might sound, they are connected. They are interrelated. We all are. So today's populist movements encourage each other. So yes, Trump's existence also encourages Erdogan and vice versa. And therefore, I think we need to understand that we're all in this together. We have things to worry about, to to feel hopeful about as well. Um, But the danger of of nationalism, tribalism has not disappeared. And all around the world, we are being told that we all belong in our tribes. And they're telling us that if we go back to our tribes, we will be safer if we are surrounded by sameness. And that's an illusion.
2: Thank you. I want to come back to populism straight after. But why don't we hear from you, Doug? You've written a whole book about the death, the strange death of Europe. You obviously believe Europe is not just on the edge, but has gone over the edge. Just tell us in a very distilled form, if you can, what's on your mind.
7: Sure. I don't make any apology, by the way, for being gloomy. I think that if the facts are gloomy, you should be gloomy. And I think a huge amount of damage has been done historically and is still being done today by optimists.
3: (laughs) Um. (laughs) i have to fight back.
7: Um. But we might get on to that. Um, My view is that, I mean, our continent is in the business of bullet dodging these days, and every time a bullet sort of whizzes past its head, we think, oh, well, it hasn't hit, so it'll be fine for another day. And I think that isn't true, but I think that the real problems are far deeper than the issues that any one uh, election throws up these days, or any one challenger can throw up. Uh, My book's about what I see as being the two twin challenges that have come simultaneously. The first is the mass movement of peoples into Europe. And the second is that this should come at the same time that Europeans have lost the sense of what we are or what we're meant to be or whether we're allowed to be or whether we are just the place where anyone in the world who wants to call our continent home can call it home. And uh, I think this is a... Massive historical issue that's far beyond, at the moment, the grasp of any politicians in our country to deal with, but it'll it'll be the one that galvanises
2: us, I think, throughout our lives. You're going to want to to make a defence of optimism.
3: Yes, I think I'm going to feel rather lonely.
2: No, not necessarily. (laughs) I'm sure there's lots of optimists out there. Let's let's just pick up this thing about populism first, because you suggested that, in a way, uh, the moment had passed, the the peak had been reached because Macron won instead of Le Pen. But I thought, before we get into it, you mentioned populism too. Uh, Elif, why don't we just say how we're defining it, first of all, just in in a very short... Still what, what, what do you mean when you say popular?
6: Well, that's the that's challenge, isn't it? Because um, it, it's so close to democracy. And we're not talking about a problem that originates from outside democracy but comes from within. And, and shows us the fragility of democracy. In other words, how do you deal with movements that come to power using the means of democracy? And once they consolidate their power, use that position in order to suppress all voices of dissent one by one. So Erdogan and,
2: would be a classic case. Yeah,
6: Turkish. the Turkish case is quite interesting and it really holds important examples for Democrats and, in my opinion, progressives, liberals all around the world. Um, populism needs dualities. I think that is one of the keys. There always has to be an us and there needs to be a them. The description of the them can change from time to time, but that duality is essential. It also tells us that there's the real people, pure people, versus the corrupt elite and it presents itself as if it has nothing to do with the establishment, as if it has been zoomed from another planet. Nothing can convince me that Trump is not part of the financial establishment or Marine Le Pen herself is not part of the political elite. Of course, we can be critical of the elite's mistakes, but let us not make the mistake of thinking that these populist demagogues are themselves not
2: part of the elite. Excellent. Thank you. So that's an understanding of what populism is. Paul Collier, what, what role has migration and the backlash against migration played in fueling these populist movements, visible actually in Britain with UKIP, but in France with Le Pen and Holland with Wilders? There's all kinds of examples. What, how much is this about immigration? I think,
4: um, and most in the audience won't like this, but I, I, I think what's, what's actually happened is is, is, is not particularly something to the... Well, let's focus on the English working class. I think the English working class now is more or less where it's always been. I think what's walked is the English middle class, um, which has decided that it doesn't really want to be English. Um, um, it's walked away from a shared identity with ordinary people, um, I think this is particularly pronounced in London, I'm afraid. I grew up in Sheffield, right? with a proper place. And, um, uh, and I grew up in, a, in an environment where I was surrounded by Scots, left, right, across the road, all Scots. And it never occurred to any of us that we were other than the same identity. They were Scottish, I was English, but we were all British. We just fought a war together. Oh, God, I've done it again. Right? <laughs> um, and, um, and because of that, there was a, a strong willingness to, of the fortunate to redistribute to the less fortunate. We were a shared identity. Um, and I think that that has gradually corroded. But the, Here's, here's a, an uncomfortable piece of statistical evidence, right? Across Europe the higher is the proportion of immigrants in the population, the lower is the willingness of those above median income to make tax transfers to people below median income. That's across Europe. There's also um, experimental behavioural evidence, which which explains why that is. I can't go into it. But um, what that means is people below median income, ordinary people, have a perfectly rational reason to fear that immigration will sort of weaken this sense of shared bonds and the middle class will just run off, go and do its
2: own thing. So you will have heard arguments like that in France as well, the French equivalent arguments, that now the country has changed, it's so diverse, that the willingness to treat each other as neighbours is less, perhaps. And this is part of what's been driving I, I, some I of these movements. I would
3: put it slightly different leave from Paul without, of course, uh, uh, denying uh, his his argument. But it's pretty obvious that all over the continent, the middle class has been struck by two phenomena. One is globalization, uh, and the other is the the technological revolution, which means that people get to be more and more individualistic, and their approach to uh, their political institutions, uh, the, the political elites, uh, media elites, business, business elites be- become very different. But I think that this idea of a loss of identity is quite distinct from actual migrations. There have been migrations in Europe throughout our history dating back centuries. It's more the refugee crisis, which has helped populists throughout Europe to say, oh, we're losing our identity. And of course, in places where they have never seen one single immigrant or one single refugee, In France, we saw that. We had, you know, Marine Le Pen saying, oh, you know, where has France gone?
2: Douglas, I want to hear what you say to Christine's point about there's always been waves of immigration. It's just part of European history. Why now is this making you fear that actually Europe itself may be even on the verge of its own death? because of this change that you discern in your book and in in what you've been writing? Uh, First of all, the
7: point that Christine makes uh, uh, does not prove the case, of course, does it? Because a lot of the areas where people don't like uh, uh, the diversity, shall we say, is because they've had enough of the diversity. It's not because they've never tried it. They've tried it and don't like it. And they go to areas where they can not have more of it thrown down their throat. And that's one of the big issues, isn't it, that everyone who's for the, as it were, endless diversity as a definition of us will always come to is, is there a moment when there is such a thing as too much? And I think that the people can sense that and certainly sense it far better than any political or other class. This word, by the way, populism uh, and populist, I I, I don't buy it myself, I don't use it. I, I think populist is a term that some people use for things they don't like, um, it's, it's simply a really good and easy way. I mean, let me give you an example. Uh, Monsieur Macron uh, ran without a party; effectively formed his own movement, uh, was a one-man show, uh, very charismatic, and so on. He's not described as a populist. Uh, uh, why? When Hillary Clinton does the us and them with Wall Street, as she did in her campaign, boasting that she was the only candidate so tough on Wall Street that they actually were fighting against her, who described Hillary Clinton as a populist? If Hillary Clinton had won the election, would it have been a populist win? If Remain had won, would any of
2: one have said this is a populist thing? No. Oh. You heard a definition from Elif there earlier, which was when it pits itself... Uh, against the elite. It says we're the real people, the authentic well, people, against a foreign elite yeah. or a distant elite. And particularly, uh, I'm just giving well, you a least definition, if it uses the techniques of democracy to, in some way, once it has power, to either suppress or just restrain democracy and well, democratic norms.
7: First of all, the idea of us and them is a derogatory way of describing what, say, a liberal Dutch novelist, Paul Schaeffer, described when he said, uh, in order to make this work, we're going to need a we... We need a we. We need a first person plural to describe ourselves as a society. And that is just another way of saying, oh, you're just doing us and them. Well, you do need an us. You do need an us, and uh, and as I say, I return to this point. If it is the case, well, elites—a point that, that one of the few definitions or the bits of a definition I would I, I could find agreement with—is this thing of, as it were, overstating the power of elites and overstating your own, um, you know, nascent ability to connect with the, with the people and so on. Well, fine, but sometimes you know, people aren't onto nothing. If you were to describe a sort of incredibly disjointed, unelected, uh, you know far far high above the people and unaccountable to them thing you know what could you do better than come up with the european commission is it always populist is it is it always populist to point that out i would say no so sometimes people are onto something but as i say this is i think this is just another way of saying scare quotes around these people we we would like to call them racist uh, but we're not sure it'll work anymore and we're nervous mm. So we'll call them populists.
2: <laughs> Lots of people want to come in. Thank you. Both of you want to come in. I just want to ask you, Luigi, about po- what your take on this is, because what has, whether or not you accept the definition of either of the, our two debaters on this point, uh, a lot of people s- uh, debate, quest- uh, discuss what is driving populism. Is it cultural anxiety, broadly defined, meaning the questions of identity and who is us and perhaps race, or is it just... More simply, economic hardship and pain. Christine mentioned globalization. Other people have talked about automation. You know, people who are left behind economically. That's why they're turning to so-called, we may accept Douglas's worries,
5: so-called populism. So, two things. First of all, I like the definition, but uh, there is a part missing, is the other side. The other side of populism is elitism. And I think that uh, the two are very symbiotic. Because you can have populism only when there is an elite that is elitist. And the elitists justify being elitists because they are populist and vice versa. And and I think that well, there is not enough discussion these days of groups that uh, are elite and uh, as, have contempt to our ordinary people. When, when Hillary call, uh, calls deplorable the people who vote for Trump, she's an elitist. Uh, when throughout Europe they say, oh, you have to redo the referendum in England because the outcome is not the right one, and we keep going until we get the right outcome, or even sort of a debate whether uh, you should have universal suffrage because the people don't understand, because we are smart and understand, and they don't. I think that's elitism. And I think this elitist is very pervasive. I don't know enough about the UK, but I can tell you in the United States and in Italy is very pervasive. And, and I think that's part of the problem. And part of the problem is the elite is too <laughs> separate from the rest of the people. In a sense, uh, uh, social mobility, even in the United States, has gone down tremendously. And uh, you end up interacting only with some kind of people. Uh, in, in the shocking thing, how many friends do you have in the States who voted for Trump? It's very rare to find them. Mm-hmm. And gee, they were not 50%. They were only 48, but they are 48% of, of the population. Where are they? That, that shows how separate from the rest of the people we live okay. and how elitist we are.
2: Good. So you can't have populism without elitism. Le- Eli, if you've been wanting to get in, no. I'm, I also want to make sure that you know that we are going to talk about terrorism as an issue for europe and i want to hear you elif and you douglas and then we're going to go on to terrorism
0: sponsoring the show for this episode is marquee tv marquee tv is a streaming service with a difference it's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device so think dance theater music anything you might find in the west end broadway or maybe a cool little experimental space too but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well promo code, Squared, to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one of a kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared.
6: I mean, first, the emphasis on shared values. I think it's, it's, it's incredibly important. For many of my British, French friends, the the entire EU debate was a primarily financial economic debate. For us, um, those of us who come from the periphery of Europe, for us it's mainly a debate on shared values and the danger of losing those shared values. And the importance of having a supranational umbrella that brings people from different backgrounds around shared values, to me, is very important. I do not think that nationalism of any kind can be inclusive. And we have to make a difference there between maybe nationalism and patriotism. It is perfectly okay, understandable, and beautiful for us to have emotional attachments to the cultures, lands, families, where we come from. But nationalism as an ideology is a very dangerous thing. And again, people coming from Turkey, the Middle East, the Balkans, we have seen the dangers of all of that. With regards to populism... With regards to populism, populists are not the reason why in, we are in this mess. They are there because there has been a mess in the first place. So it is the outcome of democracy in trouble. It is the outcome of a crisis. We do have a crisis that we need to talk about. And I do not think that that crisis can solely be understood by looking at economic or financial
2: inequality. So we must move it off. So I, I want to make the transition to talk about terrorism because it's obviously in our minds in uh, this now uh, and, we've, you know, and then I want to open it up so I want to hear your different you know, we've talked about populism and what might be driving that uh, and what might define it but Douglas I know you wanted to get on the other thing but if you can let's pivot to this issue and everyone is asking themselves the same question which is what is causing this and is this something that is visit, merely visited upon Europe or is this something that on some level has been caused by decisions Europe and Europeans have taken
7: Well, firstly, let me just say that um, there is a a narrative, we've heard a little bit of it so far, uh, that the publics of Europe are being led astray by talented demagogues. Um, It's possible as well that the publics of Europe have seen uh, a political class fail uh, to get a grasp of very major things or even talk about them, and that the public have noticed facts. And that it's not that there's a meta-narrative that's going around. There are just facts. There are things that we can see with our eyes. There are things that are clear to us, which politicians dent uh, tread on. And I've had this experience throughout, um, throughout my life. They dent uh, tread on to this. But there's a very straightforward fact, I'm afraid, on this terrorism thing that has to be confronted. Extremism and violence can come from absolutely any community, pretty much. I mean, even Buddhists, you know, when riled up in certain parts of the world, c- can become violent. The Quakers, I think, we can't go for. But, yeah. but, um, but pretty much every committee. So, so I accept that. This is not uh, uh, um, uh, 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 something to be picked up on. But Islamic extremism only comes from the Islamic religion and from followers of it. And that is an imported problem for Europe. That's that's a problem that we've brought in and we're now facing. Now none of our politicians, by the way, and I'm not there's no great conspiracy about this, nobody expected it. If you'd have said to a politician in the nineteen nineties, in the early years of the two thousands, Europe is going to be racked by blasphemy debates. They'd say, What are you talking about? When did the Spanish Inquisition return? And then we all became used to it, that there were certain things you couldn't do that were actually blasphemy in a country like this and were punishable effectively by death, by a death sentence. We all accepted that. And now we're told we have to accept the terrorism. Well, maybe we do have to accept the terrorism as part of our life, but the publics have a right to be looking at the politicians and saying, look, this is a
2: problem you brought in. So who wants to take on what... Douglas has said. Chris, Christine, you come back on this.
3: Uh, I would like to add another comment. I'm not disputing Douglas this time around. Uh, I want to hear from somebody who does, it's, though.
2: So I'm it's interesting you.
3: that in France, we've had this very critical approach of the British view uh, about multiculturalism, communitarism, which in our vocabulary are really bad words. And there has been a great deal of French uh, self delusion about the idea that our secular culture would actually mm. integrate rather than assimilate, and that indeed our second or third generation of Immigrants coming from former colonies, which is also the case, I believe, in this country, would naturally believe that Asterix or Vercingetorix uh, was their ancestors and that our education system would transform them. It has worked to a point, especially with girls, better so uh, than with uh, young men. But we we have discovered, and indeed, as we all know, uh, France has been struck by terrorism, uh, homegrown terrorism, French citizens most of the time, as indeed British citizens in in this case. And so it shows that for two or three generations, not only our politicians, but our our societies uh, have not uh, really measured... The difficulty of giving a proper identity to these people, because it's also a sign of an identity crisis, turning to that kind of ideology, it's not even religion, it's an ideology, uh, and that shows that it is uh, indeed a dimension we No one has taken into account, and not only our politicians.
2: Douglas, you're going to come back, But I want somebody to push back on the basic case Douglas made right at the beginning, or just a moment ago, rather, that somehow this is a problem that has been brought into Europe by, I presume, Douglas, means the immigration of Muslims in big numbers.
6: My worry is extremists in one place are creating more extremists elsewhere. Whether we like it or not, we're all far too globalized to think that by closing our doors and surrounding ourselves by walls, we will be safe and away and removed from all these problems. We won't. We're all of of us in this together. It is a massive terrorism, it's a big international global problem, and it can only be solved through global solidarity. With regards to the Burkini ban in France – I sincerely believe it was very, very wrong. It was a big mistake. I think we should be criticizing faith-based schools. We should be criticizing extremist preachers. We should definitely monitor what people are saying in the mosques. But for God's sake, chasing women who are just wearing their bikinis on in the, in the beach, that is not the way forward. And it's even more dangerous because what's happening is, and this is not what, what we perhaps are not aware of much. Those pictures. Do you remember the picture of one uh, lady wearing a burkini in France and three French policemen by her? Unfortunately, that very photograph has been circulated in Turkey, in Jordan, in Egypt, with awful captions oh, saying, "You see, this is what they are oh, doing stage. to our
5: women." Catholic nuns are dressed the same way with a no, burkini, and you allow them to dress like can that. I? Why do you go after? This is crazy. Can I suggest? Can I suggest something? What, what are you? A, Okay, can just can, I, can I just finish
0: just, just okay, yeah, Elif, I,
2: I cut you off before, so I, we'll let you finish I, I, now. I, yeah. I and then, come,
6: really, I come from a country because Turkey and France have lots of similarities. The laicite we have borrowed directly from France, not the Anglo-Saxon secularism. And Turkey has applied the headscarf ban. Iran has applied the ir- headscarf ban. It didn't work. It Elif. created massive problems. But yes, we all share the same aims with regards to how do we prevent extremism, how do we prevent terrorism. But let's also find more progressive ways forward than chasing women with bourgueries.
7: We have had historically massive issues in Europe. Nobody who knows anything about our history wouldn't pretend that. But this is a civil war within a religion which was not our war. And it has become our war. It has become our war. And Elif, you are right and wrong. You are totally wrong to say that there isn't some agreement on this. If you are a Muslim and you follow Islam, you believe that the Quran came from God, and you believe that what is in it is at least very hard to run against. And so now we have a situation in a, in a country like this one where actually the majority of British Muslims want being gay, like I am, to be made illegal now. Okay? So we had a nice liberal. Agreement in recent decades over being gay, and now you import a community which actually thinks not just that they're not on board with gay marriage, but they think it should be made a lock-upable offence. Where does that come from? It comes from Islam. Okay. Um, where does where does the where do all these things come? They come from this, and, and I'm sorry, but it is a much worse uh, problem than we think. Okay, one poll last year showed that 50% of British Muslims would not go to the police if they knew somebody involved in an ISIS-like group was around them. Another poll showed two-thirds of British Muslims saying they would not go to the police if they knew somebody involved in extremist activity. What the hell are we doing? What the hell are we doing in ignoring that?
2: Okay, Douglas, let me... I know, I know, Elise. I I I will. I'm going to let you come back. I just want to press Douglas on a question here because I want to know if we accept what you said, and obviously a lot of people in this room do, and I think quite a lot don't. I want to know what you do with this sentiment because you have just described an issue, a difference with not just the people who went on a murderous rampage in Borough Market, but with Britain's entire Muslim community, no. two or three million people. So what are you actually practically saying? You're saying that this is a faith that didn't exist here before, therefore a problem that didn't exist here before. Are you suggesting these two or three million British citizens somehow have to now leave the country? No, of course not. Of course so not. So what are you
7: suggesting? The first thing is you admit this issue and you slow down or stop the flow. The obvious thing, if you've got a problem, admit to it and slow the flow. Okay? The second thing is obviously you try to work on the people you have here. Obviously. You can't. What does work on mean? Well, you hope that over many, many generations things will change. Of course, the problem we all have is a situation like the case of Salman Abedi. This country gave his parents uh, uh, asylum. They fled from Libya. We gave his parents asylum. Now we're working out what his parents actually believed. But actually, uh, uh, then two weeks ago, their son goes into a Manchester uh, arena and blows up 22 people, one for every year of life this country gave him. So we could be in a situation where we're saying, OK, the first generation are fine, but we've no idea what their children are going to do. And I would very quickly make this point. Really if quick, you so want the, to something. see the depth of this problem and a possible solution, see who the most vilified people in the Muslim community in this country, they are the reformers. Every single case, it's the reformers. Okay, and one one of the one of the one of the London Bridge attackers, one of the London Bridge attackers last year attacked an imam who's a friend of mine in London. Okay, everybody knows this. The reformers are on the on, on the on the edge of this, and this is the point. Okay. The reformers may lose, and that used to be
2: a big tragedy for the Islamic world, and now it's a tragedy for Britain. Okay, Elif wants to come in, and then we're going to questions. Quick response from you, and then we must hear from our audience. Yeah.
6: I think it's, it's really unfair. I mean, what, what makes us think that um, all of us, all of us, we are incredibly worried about what's happening and I believe all of us want to find a solution forward. It's only how we're going to find a solution. That's what we are debating. I never said that, you know, this was, this was not an uh, essential thing. I'm not even a believer myself, you know. But I'm someone who is interested in in, in dialogue, in peace, in faith, and I do know that the way forward is not by generalizing communities. The biggest problem we have today is how do we communicate with people who are not necessarily in this room? How do we find the same language? How do we reach out to girls, boys, who do, yes, some of them come from conservative families, and yes, indeed, we must stop these fanatics extremists, but if in, in doing so, we generalize all Muslims, I'm very worried I that we're generalize. adding fuel to the fire I of extremists. I didn't extremes. generalize. I gave
2: okay. you very specific things. Let's pause it there. Let's pause it there. Let's begin to hear some questions and uh, reactions from all of you. I'm hoping there are people with microphones. And there's one over there. So yeah, keep your hand up there. Keep it up so that the lady there can go. And your guest to the woman there. That's good. And let's get a third one lined up a Few lady in red t-shirt there. I'm hoping she's got a microphone. She's walking across purposefully. Uh, okay, then not there. Good. So we'll begin over here.
1: Um, there's clearly a threat of um, people going to Syria and then coming back. Um, where do you stand on what should happen there?
2: Thank you. Very specific one. And then we'll hear from you there. Yeah.
8: Yeah. Hello. Um, I have a twofold question. One is about identity. I think, like I'm from Germany, and coming to a broad country, I learned a lot about my own identity. If you have nothing to compare your own identity with, how do you really know your own identity? And I want to make a second point. In Germany, over 800,000 refugees came. We didn't know who those people are. People welcomed them. People really, really engaged into the community, helped, and they still do. There's a small minority, which is really loud and is complaining about them and has a huge majority, which really helps and engages with those refugees to integrate them. So what do you think about that when you talk about those huge flows of immigrants into England because I can't see them?
2: Don't put the microphone back just yet. I want to ask you a question. Um, Of those million refugees that Germany very famously welcomed, if, heaven forbid, but if one of them even was later involved in an act of terrorism. I know, I just want to, because we had the case, obviously that has happened, but I'm just interested in because of what Douglas said about the case of somebody, Salman Abedi, who was granted asylum in this country and then went on to kill. Does that change your view of the million who have been welcomed?
8: I don't think so, because also hundreds of thousands of Turks came 50 years ago and nothing really much happened. So if there's one, one person out of one million...
2: Okay, let's hear the. Thank you for that. Let's hear the question that's there. And I think you've got a microphone up there. Oh no, you haven't. No, you haven't. Okay, Um, that's plenty to. Oh, you've got one there. Okay, we'll hear one more, and then we're going to bring it back here. Got a question, hello.
8: Got a
2: question for Douglas. You talk about wanting to to stop the flow, Douglas. Do you support a religious test for immigrants coming to Europe or Great Britain? Okay. Thank you. Paul Colley, you wrote your book, Refuge. You heard the testimony of somebody from Germany there who the most famous sort of refugee movement of recent years, a million arriving there. What does it do to your attitude, but also to public attitudes about refugees if even one out of a million then goes on to kill uh, and maim, as we saw in Manchester? Has, is it making our whole attitude to, to refuge change? I think... Um... I think this,
4: this German decision of the moment um, was was truly unfortunate, um, because what it's done is turn people around across Europe, including Germany, uh, instead of looking at refugees and feeling compassion, they look at refugees and feel fear, and that's a disaster. Um, of course, it rapidly became completely unpopular in Germany, which is why Chancellor Merkel immediately then slammed the door uh, within within months. Within months, right? Um, and uh, not only slammed the door, but then did a, a deal with your Sorry. great leader um, to ship them back. Um, so th- this is not noble, but the real reason why it was really unfortunate, apart from this business of turning the biggest asset of refugees, the compassion we should feel for them, into, into fear. Uh, the biggest problem is that it was a really foolish thing to do. There's, um, there's 10 million displaced Syrians, and most of them have fled into the neighbouring countries, Turkey, Jordan, yeah. Jordan. I've been working with the Jordanian government the last three years. And what those refugees want is the restoration of normality, they want jobs. They want autonomy. They, they, Very few, only a tiny minority go to the refugee camps, because there, it's this model of you feed you, shelter for free, forever. What people do is go to the towns to work, and the big tragedy is nobody's brought work. Germany was in a wonderful position to bring jobs to refugees. Instead, It basically had this model, if you can swim to Germany um, fast enough, we'll take you in. So that produced a lot of people who drowned because there was no mechanism of getting them there. But even on top of that, it was incredibly selective. I reckon that about less than 5% of Syrians are in um, Germany, but something between a third and a half of all Syrians with university degrees are now in Germany. Yeah. They're the very people who will be needed to, to rebuild, rebuild Syria.
2: Syria, although it may actually help Germany. <laughs> yeah. But the um you know, they, they may, and may, 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 it's bad for Syria, but they may end up with the best and the brightest uh, arriving and in Germany. Be, and that would be selfish, and not noble. Maybe. Um, let's hear from you, Elif, on this question. I know you've got something else to say, but people asked about a question asked about the issue of people, it was from here, who've come, gone to Syria and then want to come back. And obviously, uh, many of those from, who left from here went through Turkey okay, to get to Syria. What should be the policy now, not just in Britain, but in other European countries, for the so-called returners? from those countries.
6: No, I see it as a, as a massive problem, and I'm, I'm just appalled that, especially with the London Bridge attacks, um, these people were not hiding who, what they were, what they believed in. It was so obvious because they liked the propaganda, they liked to boast, and still it wasn't or it couldn't be chased. To me, it's a big problem. Certainly those who go to Syria, mostly to Syria, but to other countries as well where they are more radicalized even, I think it should be monitored, Uh, And I am with you. There are lots of uh, big internet companies that need to change their attitude from now on because this is the world we are living in. Um, with regards to the refugees, yes, I mean Europe's position in general, EU's position, I should say. Sorry, I don't think it's is sustainable at all because most of the refugees, as you pointed out, have been divided, outsourced in a way, trying to outsource the problem to Turkey, to Jordan, and to Lebanon. Several times, Jordanian uh, government said, "You know, we can't do it anymore; it's not sustainable." In Turkey, we have close to three million refugees, Syrian refugees. It's a big mess right now on humanitarian grounds. It's wonderful that, of course, Turkey uh, welcomed them, but we have big, big problems from security to gender issues that we don't talk about. And uh, also, I think it is not admirable at all that EU for a long time postponed talking about freedom of speech violations in Turkey, human rights violations in Turkey, because it was like part of the barter not mm. to talk about yeah. these issues. Um, that's, that's where you, know, you, you lose, that's how you lose respect.
2: Okay, thank you. Now, a question was put to Douglas, I think prompted Douglas by your remark that the one thing you must do is to mm. stop or reduce the flow. Yeah. Therefore, the questioner asked, do you support a religious test for immigrants to this country? And I suppose what was in his mind was, if you don't, how on earth would you be able to sure. reduce the flow? First of all, of course, we've got to remember that we've been talking about asylum a lot. And
7: certainly now, the people coming into Southern Europe, certainly the Italian points of entry, are not asylum seekers in the way that we've seen. They're not Syrians. They are economic migrants looking for a better life. And that has always, in recent years, been a massive part of this. And these two things are constantly elided, deliberately elided, and I think dangerously elided. Um, So, yes, I, I could well get on board with a religious test, for instance... Uh, in recent years, there has been um, a significant genocide on our continent, uh, on our uh, planet, rather, uh, uh, Yazidis who were almost wiped out a couple of years ago. I could certainly get on board with something that prioritised asylum seekers if they're Yazidis or Coptic Christians. That, that's, and, that,
2: I, I, that's, I can see what you're and, doing. I can see what you're doing there, Douglas. And that's good. What I'm saying is, would you want a religious not prioritise Yazid everyone finds that admiral but would actually rule out and prevent Muslims from granting entry into this country I I can't see the sense in
7: keeping a high level of economic migration from the Muslim world no so yes Um, a religious test to prevent Muslim migrants um, secondly, very quickly, the gentleman at the back from Germany. Um, uh, y- first of all, it's not, a ca- it's not a case that it's been fine with Turkish migration since the gastarbeiter period. Merkel herself said in 2010 that it had been a, a disaster. Then uh, five years later, she made the disaster far bigger. But, um, it- 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 you know, in 2008, Erdogan went to Germany and spoke to tens of thousands of Turks in Europe from the Netherlands, Belgium, and uh, Germany, and said at a massive public rally, do not integrate, but get involved in politics because we need you. I'm sorry, this is subversion. This is outright subversion of European democracies. So yes, we had a problem. And as for the, as it were, would it matter if one in one million became a suicide bomber? Again, you, it's a cost-benefit analysis, isn't it? Um, do As long as you're not the one standing outside the wine bar in Ansbach, when the suicide bomber goes off, it might be okay for you. It might be, it might be okay, and it seems to be for most uh, uh, people in our uh, political parties in Britain, it might be okay for you to not, uh, not worry about this identity question, not worry about the numbers, um, but you've just got to hope your kids don't like Ariana Grande and go on the wrong night. But... I think the cost-benefit analysis of this has to be weighed up. And if you do think that, then say it. Say, we'll take a suicide bombing every now and then. We'll take the stabbings every now and then.
2: Sure. Christine wants to come back. And then I want to hear another one. Yeah.
3: Just a reminder that most terrorist attacks that have happened in this country, as well as in France, have been committed by our citizens. By sure. people having British or French or Belgian citizenship, so this idea—so this idea that it's a
2: flow—it's
3: right. this idea. Sorry, Indeed? don't ask him to
2: repeat it. Don't ask him to repeat okay. it. He said so what, he, what he said was, "What do they believe?" In other words, he was saying they may be British or French citizens, but if they're Muslims and their parents are Muslims, no, no, like, then as far as course, he's concerned, that's a problem. Course.
3: But that's again the issue. How come our societies have? not been able to cope with this generation of young people who have been through our schools, have benefited from our education, have been taught to share our values and still turn to that uh, murderous ideology. What's, and, your answer? What's your
2: answer to that question, to your uh, own question?
3: Uh, again, uh, an issue of identity that somehow we haven't been able To give them an identity which they can share into. Okay. Sorry, go uh, on. it's 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 an ideology, even more so than a religious issue, and unfortunately, in this case, Islam is contaminated with that particular ideology.
2: Okay. Let's um, see some more hands, because there's lots of people, I'm sure, good, lots of people who want to express themselves. Our
4: title is Europe on the Edge, and as you said in your introduction, a lot has changed since this title was given. The European project has developed from six countries to 28 countries with a single market, with a single um, currency. Yeah. Is the cause of the problem of being on the edge this drive towards a single state which would result possibly in all country citizens losing their identity
2: okay
1: thank you um, my question was we are possibly likely to have a government when it comes in that may say that we need to have reduced freedoms in order to reduce terrorism is it worth it
2: Thank you. Okay, well, there's lots there. I'm sorry, people, I couldn't get in. We we are beginning to run out of time, and I want to give our panel a chance to react to some of those questions and make some closing remarks as well. Um, Why don't we begin with... uh, Well, Paul, I'm going to ask you to tackle the one question that came up that wasn't really about the terrorism issue. It took us back to our bigger subject, about Europe, and to what extent the European project was... In trouble and on the edge, because of this insistence, as the questioner saw it, on driving towards a single European state, I mean for Britain, this argument was rehearsed very strongly a year ago, and it was settled in one very clear way. but obviously, the questioner feels it 's ongoing for the rest of Europe why don 't you take that question, Paul and any other closing thoughts you might have sure. I, th- I, th- I think the, the European project is a, um,
4: is, a, is a fantasy of old men who are fighting an old battle Um, they're trying to stop Germany and France having another war and Germany and France are not going to have another war I mean here's the to my mind the acid test Um, uh, Norway is not in the Euro it's not even in the European Union Um, the Netherlands is in both Um, if we go back to the 1940s Germany invaded both of them Um, is Germany now more likely to invade Norway than the Netherlands? right? Obviously, the answer is no. right? The, the, the peace that's descended on Europe is nothing to do with this damn institution. Right? The institution was because of a revolt against war. So the cultural shift created the institution, not the institution, the cultural shift. I think the attempt by these old guys to create um, a... Uh, a supranational set of institutions, uh, without any chance of getting a supranational identity, um, is going to is going to fail big time. I think um, I work a lot on societies where the structure of power has diverged from the structure of identity. In most of the societies I work on, identity is local and power is highly centralised, and power doesn't turn into authority. And then you've got a real problem. In Europe, power hasn't turned into authority. The directives of the European Commission, when they're
2: inconvenient, are just ignored. I'm going to gallop through, please. Now that you know that, you've got to be brief. Um, Christine, I'll this question to you, was the one about reducing freedom in order to enhance security. Is it worth it?
3: Well, I think uh, we live in contradictions. On the one hand... uh, We ask for better protection. Uh, On the other hand, uh, we uh, want our freedoms. It is obvious that the the technological revolution that we've all been addicted to uh, has has added uh, to the danger, because obviously all these terrorists are as good or even better than most of us, at using the same technologies, and I'm not sure at all that uh, even if the GAFA, all these big American companies, would agree and subscribe to their own government requests, I'm not even sure they would be able to control the contents. So I'm afraid this is another dimension. Uh, I think our liberties will be reduced. I'm not sure that it will eventually Work all that well. But again, it is a contradiction Uh, in in our democracy in France. We have been living in a state of emergency. For more than 16 months now, we've become used to having... And soldiers has it made you safer? Machines.
2: Has it made you safer?
3: Well, uh, it seems that many terrorist attacks have indeed been prevented. Right. But one terrorist attack is always one too many. Of course.
2: Okay, two, there are two of you left. I want you to... Luigi, it's hard to ask you this because um, you're not... Well, actually, no, I'm going to go to Douglas next because um, I want you to have the last word. Um, Douglas, to you, the question, will terror uh, affect these elections? Uh, Because, uh, you know, other countries have had experience of terror attacks during election campaigns. Do you think the ones that have happened in this country will affect the outcome on Thursday? Uh, And perhaps, we'll take that and anything else that's struck you. Um, No, I don't
7: think so. I mean, I... Would we'll be very surprised if, in the wake of increased terror attacks, the British people thought it was best to put their security in the hands of Mr. Corbyn. Um, have, so that means you do think there is an out. Very afraid. quickly, well, there have only been two groups of people in recent years who've tried to blow up the British people: the IRA and Islamists. And one of the very few things that uh, that links them is the support of Mr. Corbyn. Um, <laughs> And um, I hope the British people will make their voice heard on that. Very quickly, Look, all of this stuff is part of what, the point of my book, is to try to look at the, the deeper things underneath this. Our continent is racked by guilt, it's racked by tiredness, existential exhaustion, a whole range of things that mean we are very vulnerable to anyone who comes along and says it's our fault. We're very vulnerable to it, and we, we, it's, I have to say high time we snapped out of it. When I was last on the Greek islands, uh, the reception islands at the camps where migrants were coming in, you know, I was speaking to people from such a wide range of countries. Bangladesh, for instance. What's this country done to Bangladesh recently that should be a reason for us to be continuing to take in people from that country? And what's your solution if people th- who think that you can't solve Syria? What are you going to do to solve Eritrea? And you think that in the meantime we have to continue the current wave of migration? It's madness. For uh,
2: you've heard so many different points. You've heard so many different points, the one about the migration from Africa, what aspects of the culture of Saudi and Somalia we might want to uh, learn from. Uh, but why don't you give us a closing thought about where the, all this is going to end.
5: First of all, I have to reveal a conflict of interest. I, I'm an immigrant. I'm an immigrant in the United States, but I'm an immigrant. So I'm naturally sympathized with immigrants and uh, to the struggle they have and uh, to the richness that they bring. Um, this said, I also understand uh, uh, the difficulties of integration. I think that uh, uh, when immigration is too big, it's not immigration, it's invasion, and people feel uh, overruled and uh, overtaken by, by different values. And this is not because it's Muslim or not Muslim. I think it can be Catholic versus Protestant, can be sort of uh, people who eat uh, rice versus people with pasta. I think that uh, people uh, value their cultural identities, and yes, food is a huge part of their cultural identity, and uh, they feel overtaken. So I think that we should be a little bit more carefully managing the process to avoid uh, the the backlash that uh, we observe today. Uh, But this backlash, I think that uh, I I really don't like what uh, Doug said in uh, identifying Muslim, because I think that, uh, I have not done a calculation, but I think that in this country more people died of uh, Catholic terrorism. Than of Muslim terrorists. And uh, in spite of that, you don't have the same level of anger versus uh, Catholicism. So I think that uh, uh, is not, and I grew up in a country where there was political terrorists. And uh, I can assure you, it was not any better and was uh, homegrown. And uh, so I think that uh, we need to realize that uh, when there are economic uh, problems, ideological problems, uh, there is the risk of extremism, and we need to deal with that. And uh, dealing with that is not by criminalizing a religion or criminalizing a, a, a group. Um, on the other hand, we need the support of that group. One way in which Italian homegrown terrorist, uh, it was communist terrorist, was, uh, was beaten at the time is because the then communist party basically isolated the terrorists. So I think that uh, what you need to do is trying to bring closer the Islamic community and make sure that they isolate the few bad apples.
2: Thank you. Very, very good. Well... It's no surprise to anyone we have not, perhaps, reached a consensus. We have certainly not um, resolved these huge, huge issues. We've generated quite a lot of heat. But I think in the process also, I think, some light. I hope it's been illuminating for all of you. Please, will you, I hope, join me in thanking our very, very informed panel, Paul Collier, Elise Shafak, Luigi Zingales, Christine O'Krent and Douglas Murray. Thank you all very much.